Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. It's my honor to be able to speak into your life every week and be a contributor to your growth into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Thank you so much for investing in this process of discipleship and sanctification. We do this podcast every single week, and I hope, again, that it adds a lot of value to you. We are in the midst of doing a study on how to study your Bible, and we're going to continue that. We have a book that we're reading called How to Study Your Bible by Kay Arthur. If you are brand new, I will post a link to that resource so that you can get it. It will be in the show page on scottrossonline.com. It'll be scottrossonline.com slash discipleship9, and uh, you can find the resource there. With that said, let me pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for this time and I thank you for this person that is listening right now. I pray that you will work through this podcast to further sanctify them, to grow them in their knowledge and relationship with you. If anyone is in the sound of my voice and doesn't know you as their Savior, I just pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they shift their trust from whatever it is they're trusting in and they place it on you and that in doing so, they will be given the right to become an adopted child and be a co-heir to the kingdom of God with you in Christ. And I just pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Okay, we're in chapter 9, which is called When One Thing Represents Another. And what we're going to be doing today when we talk about studying your Bible is discussing three or four different concepts in which one, they're literary devices where one idea actually represents some other idea. So there is text that has true meaning either hidden within it or just beneath the surface. And so the ideas we're going to be covering is the idea of a parable and how to interpret parables. We're going to talk about allegory and we're going to talk about symbols. So parables, allegories, and symbols. And what do we do with these things when we come to them in scripture to properly interpret them? So let's talk about parables. Most of us are probably familiar with at least the concept of a parable. A parable is a story that teaches a moral lesson, and Jesus was known especially for teaching in parables. There are many famous parables, such as the parable of the prodigal son. And what do we do when we come to a parable? How do we properly interpret and analyze a parable? I'm going to give you some rules for how to approach that. The first thing we want to do when we come to a parable is we want to determine the cause or the occasion of the parable. Why was this parable being told? What prompted the telling of this parable? For instance, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, and he tells it to reveal the nature of the Pharisees' hearts because the Pharisees were grumbling about Jesus eating with and cavorting with sinners. And he was trying to point out something about the nature of these Pharisees, and that is what caused him to tell the story of the prodigal son. 
We have, you know, in Luke chapter 18, there's a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and it even says why that was told. It says, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So we want to look for those clues in Scripture as to why the parable is being told, because that's going to give us a lot of insight into the meaning of the parable. The second thing we want to do is once we feel confident in the why or the catalyst for the parable, we want to look for an explanation to the meaning, because in many parables, in fact, I would say in most parables, the meaning is actually right there in the scripture. So the parable is told, and then the scripture actually gives the interpretation, meaning we don't need to try to come up with an interpretation on our own. We don't need to try to read between the lines. The interpretation is going to be very obvious to us. And it's very important that we don't try to impose meaning beyond the meaning that was clearly stated by the scripture itself. Whatever scripture says is the interpretation, that is the interpretation. And you will find a lot of times teachers and pastors that they want to take parables and have them mean 43 different things because it sounds cool in a sermon to do that. This should be a sign unto you that they're not taking the scripture very seriously because that's not what we do. And the reason for that is actually the third rule that I want to give when we come when it comes to interpreting parables and that is that every parable has a single idea, a central idea. And that's what we want to identify. We want to find that central focal point of the parable, because unlike other types of, um, and I'm using this very, very loosely when I say this, other types of metaphorical literary devices, parables only have one interpretation and only have one meaning. So, That leads us to the fourth rule, which is, since a parable only has one central point of emphasis, we've got to find all the relevant details to that point and ignore everything else. We want to just weed out any details that are not relevant. So, for instance... Um, Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, he's he's told the parable of the sower. And he says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? And he goes on to identify what the relevant details were from that parable. And we can ignore everything else. So, for instance, you know, I'm I'm just giving you a a kind of crazy example here. But, you know, the, the sower... We, we don't need to worry about what kind of sandals he wore or what kind of basket he kept his seeds in or, you know, anything like that, because those are not details that are relevant to the, the point that the parable is trying to teach. I will just say one other thing about that, and that is that all, all the details in a parable are not always important. They're not always significant, and we don't need to create significance for them if they don't contribute to the main idea. The fifth rule is we want to interpret parables within the context of their culture rather than within the context of our culture. So, for instance, there's a parable of the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, and 
For us to really understand this, we need to understand Eastern wedding traditions. If we understand the traditions of the Eastern weddings back in that day, it will help us to really comprehend what's being taught in that parable. That parable would have made sense immediately to people of that time time period and of that geographic region because their culture made the the parable leveraged their cultural understanding. We don't want to try to make it make sense in our culture. So there are things like um you know customs of the Bible or um Bible traditions that there are books that that talk about these things and and give insights into uh, customs of the Bible and and traditions of the Bible and those are a good resource to have handy when you come to some description like this this parable that has to do with a wedding you, you need to go to that resource and say okay what was going on here what what how how did weddings function how did this really work back then and and do a little study on that to come away understanding the parable better. The sixth rule related to parables is this. The parable should never be primary or the only source for establishing a doctrine. Parables amplify doctrine. They affirm doctrine, but they do not establish doctrine. If you see someone or hear someone trying to teach a specific doctrine, and their proof text for that doctrine is a parable, that is a bad sign. You probably want to avoid that doctrine because there should be very clear passages in other parts of Scripture that lay out the precepts for that doctrine, that establish that doctrine as biblical and as orthodox, and then the parable just simply amplifies or affirms that doctrine. But if the only thing they've got to prove a doctrine is a parable, uh, that's a bad sign. Uh, doctrine is, is you know, God is not here to, to trick us or, um, you know, make it hard for us to be obedient and do the right thing. And so he lays out doctrines very, very clearly in Scripture and then can use things like parables to amplify them. So make sure you keep that in mind. So let's just quickly review again. You know, a parable... Um, is a story. We want to know what caused the person who's telling the parable to tell the parable. The why and the context of the parable is going to become very, very critical. Um, we also want to look for an explanation of the parable within Scripture. What does Scripture say that the parable meant? And um, then we want to we want to identify the central idea or the central meaning. Sorry, let's do this again. We want to identify the central meaning within the parable uh, because every parable has a single focal point, a single idea. So we want to figure out what that is. And we want to identify all the relevant details to that central idea. And then we want to ignore everything else. And then we want to interpret parables within the context of their culture. And we should never use a parable as a primary source for establishing doctrine. So if you follow those rules, you're going to handle parables accurately. With that said, let's move on to the next concept that we want to address, and that's the concept of allegory. Now, an allegory is a little different than a parable because an allegory is a story that has an underlying meaning meaning that is different from the surface of the story. So it is sometimes referred to as a 
an extended metaphor. Remember, a metaphor is an implied comparison between two things. And so an allegory is a story that is created to teach one or more than one truth, and it may or may not be related to the the story. A great example is the allegory of the vine and the branches from John chapter 15. John or Christ establishes this idea of the vine and the branches, and he teaches a lot of lessons using this metaphor of the vine and the branches. And of course, he is the vine and we are the branches. And he teaches a number of truths that all play on this relationship between a branch to its vine. So an allegory is different than a parable because an allegory can have more than one concept or truth that is trying to teach. So what we want to do when we come to an allegory is we want to list all the features of the allegory. So another example of an allegory is the allegory of the bond woman and the free woman from Galatians chapter four, where he says Abraham had two sons, one by the bond woman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bond woman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise. So what are the features we have here? We have a bond woman, we have a slave, or I'm sorry, we have a free woman. Then we have birth by flesh and then birth by promise. Those are the features of the allegory. So that tells us the framework that we are going to operate from. Then we want to note any interpretation that is given within the text. So just like with parables, almost every parable, the um, teller of the parable or the person who heard the parable relates the interpretation immediately following it, oftentimes within the allegory, the interpretation will already go uh, be given. An example is in that Galatians passage I'm referring to about the bondwoman and the free woman, it says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. And now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as that or as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So right there within the allegory, we are given the interpretation. We don't need to look for the interpretation. It's laid out black and white right there. Now, step three, don't contradict clear teaching of the word. By interpreting an unexplained detail in an allegory in some way that would contradict clear teaching. So this goes back to a rule we've talked about before in hermeneutics, which if you're just now joining us, hermeneutics is the science of the interpretation of Scripture. And we've talked about the fact that when we're interpreting Scripture, we never interpret a clear passage by an obscure one. We reverse it. We always interpret the obscure passages in light of the clear passages. So, for instance, we have very, very clear passages that say, um, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Well, that says world and whosoever. So that's very, very clear, and we have a lot of those. Then we have some really obscure passages that people twist to say, well, Christ only died for a few people. Well, we don't need to worry about the ones that seem like they may mean a few people because we would interpret those in light of the clear passages that say that Christ died for everyone rather than the other way around. Well, that's true in an allegory as well. When we have details within an allegory that aren't we aren't given the interpretation for those things within the allegory, we don't want to try to apply meaning to them that would in any way contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. I will tell you, there's a lot of teachers that do this sort of thing. You know, one of the things that is unfortunate but is true is that a lot of teachers and pastors, their ego is driven by this perception that they're spiritually more insightful than the average person, than you. You know, they know more than you. They have some insights that you don't have. And so you see this especially with a lot of TV preachers, but it's in it's in pulpits all over the place. And that is this notion that I have some sort of special insight that the only person who ever got this insight was me. In fact, if you ever hear a pastor saying, God spoke to me and said or told me this, your ears should perk up and you should have red alerts going off. And I'm not saying God can't speak to your pastor, but I'm telling you that every word that he says better be in absolute alignment with the scripture we've already got because God's not going to show up and only reveal to only your pastor that there's this special interpretation that does contradict scripture. I mean, it would never happen. God will never contradict himself. So anyway, going back to the allegory, I didn't mean to get on a little soapbox there, but going back to the allegory, we don't ever want to take a detail within the allegory and have it mean some big secret thing that no one's ever heard of before. And lots of times teachers will try to do that because it's easy to do. Since we're dealing with metaphorical language, um, it's simple uh, to accomplish as, you know, if you're a rhetorician, if you're if you're somebody who speaks in public, it's real easy to, to manipulate that to make you sound smarter, wiser, more insightful, more spiritual, whatever. Okay, next, we we want to basically um, get rid of some of the features of an allegory that aren't going to be relevant. We don't want to try to identify every single thing. For instance, in the allegory of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15, which I mentioned earlier, he talks about people that are gathering the branches and throwing them in the fire. And he never mentions who these people are or what they do or how they were picked or any of that stuff. We don't need to worry about who are these people that gather the branches because it's a part of the me- the metaphor, if you will. It's a part of the allegory that's not relevant to what the to the point of the allegory. And just like every analogy, every analogy has a breakdown at some point. You know, he's giving this metaphor of the vine and the branches. We don't need to take everything and have it mean something. There's going to be ingredients to every allegory that are not not necessary to biblical truth, and we just ignore those. So let me give you some comparisons between parables and allegories, because we've talked about both. Parables have a single point, whereas allegories can have more than one point. Parables teach one truth. Allegories can teach num- uh, multiple truths. A parable. Every relevant detail reinforces the central point, whereas in an allegory, the details may or may not relate to any of the themes of the allegory. With a parable, um, it can have irrelevant details 
and we don't need to identify what those details are. And in an allegory, similarly, you can have irrelevant details, but we do need to identify all the features of an allegory. With a parable, the story is separated from its interpretation and its application most of the time. So what I mean by that is, in most cases, there's the parable told, and then stop, now the interpretation, stop, now the application. Whereas with an allegory, the interpretation and the application is often intertwined into the telling of the allegory. And last but not least, interpretation, again, like I said, follows parable normally, whereas interpretation is found within the allegory itself. Okay, the last thing we're going to cover is symbols. A symbol is a picture or an object that stands for or represents some other thing. For example, the seven candlesticks that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 represent the seven churches that are described in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, When we note that there's a symbol, we want to do a couple of things. First of all, the item that is used as the symbol can symbolize different things in different passages. So we don't just keep thinking about that symbol as meaning only one thing. For example, water is used to symbolize the Word of God in Ephesians, and it's used to symbolize the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7. So if we notice that water represents the Holy Spirit in one passage, we don't say, well, every time I see water, we must be talking about the Holy Spirit. That's not true. And even though a symbol can represent a lot of different things, when it does symbolize something in a given passage, we expect that there's only one parallel intended by the writer. So as an example, using that water as the Holy Spirit in John 7, when it's when we're told that water is symbolizing the Holy Spirit, we know that's the only thing it's going to symbolize in that passage. Within one passage, a symbol will never represent two things or three things. It always represents one. So in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, water symbolizes the Holy Spirit not the word, whereas when you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, water represents the word, and it does not represent the Holy Spirit. Again, as we said back with allegory and parables, we want to interpret all symbols in light of their biblical setting and their biblical culture rather than our current culture. You know, um, a sheep gate today means something very different than a sheep gate meant in the first century. And so when Christ says, I am the gate, we need to understand what that meant in first century rather than what it means today. And symbols are timeless and they can symbolize something past, present, or future. So don't lock the symbol into only representing something in the past or only something in the present. Symbols are timeless as long as we keep in mind that whatever they represent in a given passage, that's the only thing that they're going to represent in that passage, nothing more and nothing less. So with that said, we've just covered three different literary devices. We've covered the parable, we've covered allegory, and we've covered symbols. 
And hopefully this has been helpful to you in your interpretation of Scripture as we move forward. Uh, In the next episode, we're going to talk about revelation and prophecy and how we you know, approach prophetic writings and handle them accurately. So I can't wait to be with you again next time. Until then, get into your Bibles, study, pray, and grow in Christ-likeness. Can't wait to be with you again next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout-out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.